This is the question that has bedeviled this nation since its founding. Are we going to be a democracy or are we going to be a white supremacist state? Well, you're listening to the voice of Heather McGee right there, the author who wrote The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. What does racism cost us? Not just metaphorically, but financially, and not just people of color, but all of us. We have some deep questions we're exploring on this special edition of Seattle News, Views, and Brews. I'm your host, Brian Callanan. I'm also a host on the Seattle channel. The views expressed here are my own. And I'm joined by Dr. Stefan Blanford, Executive Director of the Children's Alliance, former Seattle School Board Director, who is hosting an event with Heather McGee in just a few days. And Stefan, before we get into that, I just wanted to check in. Other than being the guy who's trying to pull off a major virtual event in just a few days, how are you doing? I, I see you laughing. You, I think you started that right. It's yeah, yeah. It's a challenge to pull off an event where Heather's going to be virtual. She's in another part of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of our guests are coming from different parts. and But I'm excited. I'm so excited about the opportunity to engage with her. It's going to be great. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Thank you so much, Stefan, for being with me. And thanks also to City Grind Espresso, our background noise sponsor for the audio podcast. Please support them, other small businesses too. Thanks also to our show patrons. If you want to join them and support local journalism, it's Seattle News, Views, and Brews on Patreon. We also thank Converge Media. Converge airs the video version of this podcast on their YouTube channel. All right, let's get started with Right Here, Right Now. Stefan, before we get into the details of when people can connect with Heather McGee, I wanted to talk about what she's bringing to the table. Her book, and full disclosure here, folks, I'm still working on getting through all of it, but it centers around an image that comes across so powerfully to me, the drained public pool. So a century ago, just to give you some background here, folks, our country built a ton of these grand places, these big pools, all part of the growing American dream, these public pools, but many were for whites only. They were segregated. In the 50s and 60s, Civil rights advocates made the argument, hey, black communities are paying taxes here too, and the pools were ordered to be integrated. But in many communities, and she highlights one pool in Montgomery, Alabama, rather than integrate the pool, city leaders destroyed it, filled it with concrete. It was never rebuilt. So black families could not swim there, but now white families couldn't either. This was a move that exacted a cost on everyone, not just people of color. Stefan, I just wanted to talk to you about that image and what you drew from from Heather McGee's work and why you reached out to her to speak at your upcoming event. Well, it, it's a pretty amazing that I grew up in the South. And since we contracted with Heather to speak at our event, I talked to my mom and my mom shared that that I didn't get a chance to be in pools because the city leaders decided to close down the pool. And so I have personal experience with that, that I didn't know before we uh, actually contracted with Heather. Wow. But it, it is so incredibly profound to think about why people would close down their own pools in order to prevent black kids from swimming in them. Yeah, it, it's just kind of this whole interpreting the world in the kind of whole zero sum way. Zero sum, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and if, And if you see that way, just kind of follow along the idea, it can lead to the concept of rather than figure out ways to succeed together, we deprive ourselves of something that could benefit all of us, all because we're afraid of that other group is going to gain somehow and we're going to lose. Did did you see that ethic too? Yeah, I believe that um, there are lots of different manifestations of that zero-sum paradigm. I think when we talk about Seattle Public Schools and school Mm -hmm. districts in general, I think that plays out as well. But um, I think there are manifestations of that that you see in all aspects of of how children 
exist in society and how people in general exist in society. So it's not a it's not a new or novel concept. Right. We just figured out a way to encapsulate it in a way that's easy to understand. Yeah. And, and help me out with that connection. How do you draw the connection between these really challenging topics we're talking about here and the work you do with Children's Alliance? Well, Children's Alliance is all about figuring out how looking at the data and seeing that there are huge numbers of kids and families that don't have opportunity, that are the kids that are excluded from the pool. And we're trying to figure out, we're trying to daylight and make sure that everyone knows that this is still exists. It's not a phenomenon that existed in the 60s and was eradicated as a result of the Voting Rights Act or the Housing Act or anything like that. It still exists. It just is in a different manifestation now in the 21st century than it was in the 20th century. How, how would you describe that manifestation? What, is that, what does that look like? It, it's insidious, I think. It's under the surface. And I, I'm trying to get your, your take on, on how that looks like in the, in the modern world. Well, I know, I know in the K-12 space, it, there are a lot of narratives that are taught to people that say we are better off when we exclude, when we isolate ourselves from groups of other people who, for some reason or another, are not deemed to be worthy to swim in our pools or live in our neighborhoods or whatever. We're trying to just surface that and get people to really grapple with. You learn that narrative from somewhere, which means it can be unlearned. Hmm. And imagine what society would be like if you unlearned that and others unlearned that we were able to exist, coexist um, in different ways. Would this apply to things like when I was a kid, it was called gifted and talented education gate. There were certain classes that were set aside for uh, kids who happen to do better in different. I'm not trying to show off here, but I did pretty well in math and English when I was a kid. And so there were these classes that felt like they were set aside for me. Is that what you're talking about? In in many ways, it, that is one manifestation of it for sure. In the K-12 space, the idea that some kids are so talented that that they would be better off operating uh, in an environment that's homogenous, where all the smart kids are. And, you know, there's ample data to suggest that is not, in fact, the case, and that you want to do better for all kids. Public schools are built around the notion that all kids should be successful. Mm-hmm. And kids that do better um, have the opportunity to work with kids who are doing, who are less, who are further behind, mm-hmm. and actually accelerate their growth. And it doesn't harm it doesn't actually harm the kids that are testing well to start off with. Actually, in some cases, you see their their an acceleration in their educational trajectories as a result of being in classes with kids who are differently abled than they are. Right. You learn how to do it. You understand how to do it. And then you teach how to do it. And I, I think you learn. Yeah. Is, is that kind of the model you're thinking? You, there? you teach and you model. In mm. many ways, you are helping kids to understand that this is not rocket science that kids can you can pick it up even if you haven't been exposed to calculus or higher level math you still can pick it up and that modeling is it is so important for kids that for one reason or another are behind i hadn't even thought about that how those those kids who might be a little more advanced in some of these topics can really help themselves and help other kids too in the classroom that that's what you're talking about here it sounds yeah yeah, in some ways it is that, and you know, even in a, even a broader way, we're thinking about operating with um, this idea of a meritocracy and individualism mm-hmm. as opposed to working collectively. And we see, you know, in our work world, in lots of different arenas, 
that being able to work collectively and think about the entire community moving forward is a much more powerful strategy than this individualist orientation that some of us are raised with. Right, right. I mean, I was I was looking at grades that I got or whatever else, which I, I think there is some value to them, but I hear what you're saying too. If it turns into a meritocracy where everybody's not getting helped up, then how are we really helping the public, I guess, right. is, is the right. look at it. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the idea of a meritocracy is a good thing, but mm-hmm. we don't start at the same level. Mm. So the the meritocracy is those who are achieving, continue to achieve at higher levels. And eventually you see the fractures in society that we're experiencing right now. Yeah. Right? yeah. There, there are so many ways that society is starting to fracture because of this notion of a meritocracy, which is false at its face. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess you would mention this is an issue within the Seattle public schools that, that we are dealing with right now. Is it something that's kind of baked into this system, baked into a lot of school systems, or are there specific issues with Seattle public schools that you're trying to tackle? Yeah, well, so let's be really clear. My school board service ended a few years That's ago. right. That's right. I know who you're speaking for. You're speaking for yourself. I understand. I'm speaking yep. for myself. I wish all the best to, this, to the sitting school board directors, but I am not one of them anymore. Right. While I was, it was really important to me to address some of the uh, what we call opportunity gaps. The fact that there are huge numbers of kids who you can predict will do less well than other kids. And in a public school system, that's not that's not what we want. Uh, when I was campaigning, I was really clear that I believe all kids should be performing at high levels. And most of the people that voted for me agreed with that. So that was something that I was working on continuously mm-hmm. to try to address some of the disparities that we see in Seattle public schools. Seattle public schools is not unique. Almost every school district in the nation has those race-based disparities that um, should be addressed. Got it. And in terms of what you want to hear from Heather McGee, she clearly has done a lot of work and a lot of research on this topic. Where her work intersects with education is where I'm guessing you're going to really try to move the conversation here. But can you talk to me about what people can expect to hear from her, what you want to hear from her at this presentation on June 7th? Well, I think you did a good job in talking about the zero-sum paradigm that exists, the, the idea that some people believe that they have to isolate themselves away from the rest of society for some reason, to really interrogate where that comes from and start to challenge it. And to she's going to put forward some prescriptions for how we could do things differently. And I'm really excited about that because... You know, with all that's going on in the United States and the world right now, I'm looking for solutions. And she has some very elegant solutions to some of the issues that confront us right now. That sounds great. Can you talk to us a little bit more about how people can interact with Heather McGee? Because it sounds like it's a really exciting event and something that the Children's Alliance is certainly excited about. Tell us about how people can connect. Yeah, so we, uh, the easiest way is to go to the Children's Alliance website, childrensalliance.org, and you can register to attend the event. We have free tickets. Uh, you can buy a ticket. You can donate at the event, and you'll have the opportunity to watch um, on June the 7th, so next week uh, at noontime. You can watch it live. If you register and that time doesn't work for you, you can have access to the video of the recording, video recording of the event 
yeah. and stream that for up to 30 days afterwards. So there's no excuse for you not to, to have the opportunity to participate in this if you choose to. And it just sounds like a lot of people would want to connect with this is, is why I really wanted to reach out with you and talk about it. It's not necessarily, oh, I've got kids who are in school or, you know, I, I'm in school myself. I'm a student or whatever else. I, I'm trying to figure out who connects with this issue the best. And I, I feel like this, it's a pretty broad audience, Stefan. Yeah, yeah. I'm really excited about it. When I read the book, I thought about uh, people who care about kids, people who are interested in the economy, people who have kids in schools. Um, people who are very concerned about the kind of the polarities that we're seeing in society right now. Um, and we've been really surprised at the number of people who have responded and said that they're interested in it. So um, I'm glad to have this opportunity to share, and hopefully that will ins- inspire more people to participate. Boy, I hope so, too. Stefan, thank you very much for talking to me about that. All right. Well, up next, we've got a new Seattle Public School superintendent, interim superintendent, Dr. Brent Jones, now has the permanent job. We're going to talk about the challenges he has ahead on Now Hear This. Well, Seattle Public Schools has a new leader, Brent Jones, who stepped up from the interim role at the urging of many people in his community, including Mayor Bruce Harrell. Dr. Jones said in his State of the Schools speech back in March, he is honored to take the role of superintendent. And while it has not been easy, he says he's dedicated to helping children and the district thrive. Here's how he closed out his address to the public just a few months ago. We must make each school day and each school year count. Our students, particularly our students of color, furthest from educational justice, need us more now than ever before. I believe that together we can ensure that they succeed. Dr. Blanford, b- before we get into some of the ideas brought up there, what's your take on the selection of Brent Jones as the new superintendent of Seattle Public Schools? Can he provide some stability for SBS? Because it has definitely been sorely lacking in that over the last several years. Well, I- I'll say... Um Dr. Jones is a personal friend of mine, um, and while I was serving on the school board, I probably interacted with him as much as any other staff person. Um, our kids were kindergartners at the same time, and so they actually played together. Hmm. And so I was really happy to hear that the board uh, had appointed him as interim and then as permanent superintendent. He's got some big challenges. Um, the pandemic has yeah. has uh, devastated a lot of forward momentum for the district, and he's trying to recover that. He's trying to rebuild uh, with lower enrollments, and so a lot of headwinds that he's facing. But I think he's up for the job. I think so, too. I, I think he's going to be a, a patient leader. I've definitely seen that over the past several months here. But I will say, right as he was taking that permanent job, he got some pushback from the Seattle Education Association, the teachers union there, some other critics, too. This is around the time when Governor Inslee made the call to end mask requirements a bit earlier than a lot of us thought. But Superintendent Jones said at that time masks would be optional in early March. Then the SEA said that violated the agreement they had with the district, etc. Some student groups were pushing back, too, and asked that mask requirements get reinstated. Stefan, I'm trying to figure out if the superintendent pass that test or how you look at this COVID is such a moving target as we know, but I'm just trying to figure out how you think he handled that situation and what he's going to be like with other challenges moving forward. What I would say in response to that is that there's limited information that we know externally. That's fair. Um, Okay. If I was on the school board, I think I would know a little bit more about some of the challenges that were in place. What I do know is that um, half of society wanted to have masks. The other half didn't. Uh, the, the issues with kids, the issues with the union and mm-hmm. teachers, are they are all 
you know, a, a witch's brew of challenges that yep. uh, someone would have to face in that situation. I think he managed it reasonably well. Um, there, there are a lot of constraints on his ability to navigate through all of that. Yeah, I know he's dealt a lot with different teachers unions over the past several years. So I'm, I'm interested to see how that part of it plays out, too. But just kind of looking forward here, you touched on some of the challenges that Dr. Jones might have ahead looking forward here. Can you talk about some of the other things that are coming out down the line? Take me to that beautiful day when we're not dealing with COVID as much anymore, if you can. It would Talk to me about that. Some of those big overarching challenges that you know he's trying to deal with. He, he mentioned that term in his uh, State of the School speech a few different times, this whole concept of educational justice, which right. I, I think is a big one and, and core to who he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, some, t- some thoughts about that and what the future holds for Dr. Jones in the district. Yeah, you know, so much of um, his ability to move and navigate is driven by the enrollment of schools. Mm. And as you saw in the pandemic, you saw a number of kids um, become homeschooled. Some went to private school, some moved out of state. And as enrollment goes down, his ability to navigate is is constrained greatly because Mm -hmm. there's not enough money in the system in order to drive the type of innovation that we all need and expect, right? And so he's got that challenge to start off with. And then, you know, the polarization that has happened in the United States has visited Washington State and has visited Seattle. And so you don't have kind of the consensus of the board members. They are all still relatively new. I think um, there's only one that has been, that has more than four years in office. And so um, that is a constraint. Um, the, just the role of technology and the fact that a lot of kids have been educated. Many kids have said, I'd rather continue to right. be educated in front of my laptop rather than go into school. Mm-hmm. And so there's lots of swirl that is happening that is really kind of constraining his ability to um move through all these challenges. A lot going on there. And I am very hopeful for the future there for that district and so many others. Just as we wrap up this thought about Dr. Jones here and, and what he has ahead, this whole concept of emerging from the COVID crisis, where where do you think we are going to be? And again, hoping that trends continue in a positive way, et cetera. But where is education going to be on the other side? And I am so hoping we get there on the other side of the COVID pandemic. Yeah, I, I, I think more than anything else, technology is going to have a big impact. We were talking for years, the entire time I was in school, we were talking about when are we when are we going to re-envision what education is going to be like mm. uh, for kids that can't come into school on a regular basis. Yeah. For kids that are in school, but they get the content really fast, but we're still driven by this idea of seat time. You've got to sit in yep. a seat for four years yeah. in order to move from school. The pandemic has shifted all of that. Right. Where now you see kids that have can take any test and perform on those tests. Why would they need to stand in school for four years? Right. right? And particularly when you have the technology now that you didn't have in place. That said, some people have technology, others don't. And the pandemic really demonstrated the number of kids that don't have access to a laptop, that don't have access to Internet. Mm -hmm. or their internet is spotty. And so we have to address all of those issues in real time while we're still dealing with the lingering after effects. Pandemic's not going away. There's going to be some manifestation of it that exists for quite a while in the future. And so there's lots of challenges that uh, face anybody that's in that chair. 
Yeah, and so many different institutions, too, not just education here. But, uh, Dr. Blanford, thank you so much for breaking down all those pieces with me. All right, we're going to keep looking ahead into the future with an interesting story about school funding at the hyper-local level, searching for equity for fundraising via PTA organizations across the city. We're going to dive into that in our next segment, What's Next? Stefan, I saw a few great articles in the South Seattle Emerald and the Seattle Times over this past week talking about PTAs, parent-teacher associations around the city, pooling together their resources when it comes to fundraising. So this concept really started taking hold in Seattle last year. Now more schools are getting on board with the idea this year to make fundraising more equitable because not all Seattle schools even have PTAs or parent-teacher organizations to raise funds. So I'm looking at this, I'm thinking a lot of people would say, hey, it's great to see this work happening, people working together and pooling their resources. What do you think of this whole shared fundraising idea for PTAs around Seattle? Well, I, I think it's important to think a little bit about the disparities in PTA fundraising. There are some schools that have zero dollars and there are other schools that raise somewhere around. When I was on the board, mm-hmm. we looked at some statistics that said that there were some schools that were raising more than half a million dollars annually. Wow. And then using that money to fund additional teachers, additional programs for their students. Mm-hmm. And you saw the gaps in achievement you know, just spiral as a result. Right. Right. And, you know, I served as a PTA um, parent back mm-hmm. in the day and yep. helped to raise money for the school that my, my child was attending. And I know that um, you want to support, you see the disparities and you want to support the school, but mm-hmm. when it causes these huge gaps in funding, then it becomes a problem. So I think the folks who have figured that out have been very innovative and have used the argument to say, in this progressive city, we want to be working for all kids. Yeah, It's not perfect. Um, many of the schools that raise the most money are not participating at this point. But mm-hmm. I think as they demonstrate that there is some credibility and some uh, power in doing it this way, yeah. we'll be able to recruit more and more schools. It's, just such a, it's such an interesting model because you look at these PTAs, in terms of where the funding goes, et cetera, there's a lot of crucial pieces there. We're talking about uh, field trips. We're talking about classes for art. We're talking about a number of very important things that I think a lot of schools take for granted. And it just really says to me, I think just dovetailing with what you're saying here, how siloed a lot of our different schools can get. You know, it's like, of course, I'm focused on on this fundraising here, but there are so many other needs out there. And and I don't know if they're not all being met, I think is the bottom yeah. line. And, and there's, there's some real challenges in that um, there were people while I was on the school board who were advocating for, we shouldn't raise any money mm-hmm. from ETAs because it just exacerbates our gaps. And I would push back and say, there was not enough money in the system as is, right? I want to try to figure out ways to, to use a bad word, redistribute some of that yeah. so that it ends up benefiting all kids. But I don't want to, I don't want to close down the, the faucet and prevent any additional money to come in because we're then going to the state legislature and saying, we need more money. And they push back and say, you have money. Why aren't you taking right. advantage of it? Right. right. So right. it's a difficult situation. It, it just feels so much like the different discussions that I know you and other school board directors were having over the past several years with the McCleary decision on a mm-hmm. statewide level. Where are we sending our resources? Right. And, and as much as the state, quote unquote, fixed that, 
I think we're still seeing those inequities, and oh. and uh, that that's a, that's a part of this discussion too, don't you think? Oh my God, it is such a part of this discussion. To think about a wealthy district, and Seattle Public Schools is a wealthy district. Yes, in comparison to other districts that have far less funding, mm-hmm. and saying, well, what do we need to do to ensure that there's adequate funding? as is required in state constitution. Yep, paramount right? duty, you got it. Adequate mm-hmm. responsibility or adequate funding to make sure that every kid has the opportunities that they uh, deserve. Yeah, I, it, it's it's going to be interesting to watch that play out. I, do you have any thoughts about the future of PTA fundraising? Because it sounds like more schools are getting involved, which again, I think helps in terms of the dollars and cents that are distributed. Does it lead to this larger discussion about uh, better equity in terms of fundraising or, or what do you see as the future of this whole PTA fundraising issue? Well, I, I think that there needs to be infrastructure to be able to manage it. Yeah. I think that there need to be leaders. This is a situation where leadership is called for and there are people out there who are advocating for this, but it needs to rise up in scale so that the parent who is still thinking about their isolated school and wanting to support their isolated school starts to understand that that they can be involved in the solution to a much bigger challenge, right? Yeah. Um, because when that when they get unleashed, then that's that's thousands of parents who are contributing and creating this kind of school district that we actually want. Amazing stuff. Uh, Dr. Stefan Blanford, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's always my pleasure to spend time with you, Brian back at you. All right. That's Dr. Stefan Blanford, the executive director of the Children's Alliance. Definitely thank you, sir, for talking to me. You can learn more about the Children's Alliance, their work, and their upcoming event on race, educational justice, June 7th with Heather McGee at childrensalliance.org. Thanks also to our patrons out there and everybody listening. It's Seattle News, Views, and Brews, where you can always find out what's brewing in local politics and education, too. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen. Again, Please become a patron on Patreon if you like what you're hearing. We really could use the support. Thanks also for watching on Converge Media. We'll see you next time. Seattle News, Views, and Brews is an independent production of Calaman Media Services. Copyright 2022.